You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm talking to Toby Haydoke, who's a very well-respected comic. Uh, he's been going 20-something years, I think, and uh, is probably best known for his obsessive fandom of Doctor Who. Uh, I mean, ob- obsessive and fandom don't even do it justice. He's absolutely astonishing. Um, and, uh, and of course, for his stewardship of the, uh, the club in Manchester, Excess Malarkey. He's a very fine comedian, an excellent writer, who's uh, who two or three different pieces of work of his have really made me cry properly um, and uh, I think he's a really lovely man to talk to as well he's a sort of quintessential bumbling English gent which he both plays up to and uh, suddenly does little rug pulls with that character on stage so without further ado and with many thanks to the Manchester Comedy Store for the room to record this episode this is Toby Haydoke. Where do you see your place in the comedy uh, firmament? I don't know. It's interesting because I was thinking about, you know, this is called The Comedian's Comedian, and I was going, I'm, I'm not sure I am one. I don't know if I've ever been fashionable. Um, uh, I, um, beca- I think it's because it's, the waters are mudded slightly because I've booked gigs and I still, the new stuff nights here at the comedy store every couple of weeks. That's not a paid gig, but I still do the admin. I, I book it. So there are people that come to me for work, as it were, even though it's not paid work. Um, and Excess Malarkey, I mean, that used to be a one-man band and I used to I used to book it. So it's a slightly odd one in that I wonder if anyone's ever truly honest with me because it still has that sort of hangover of... Uh, even though it's a very badly paid gig, I, there's still a you know a bestowing of employment that goes on. Um, I suppose I I suppose I encounter a lot of people early in their career because excess malarkey is a place that um, if you're a, if you're a new act, it's one of the first sort of pro gigs that you do because we have space for. There's always a ten minutes for somebody that's never done it before, um, and I think I'm quite a, a genial sort of fellow. So. Um, um, I, I guess I, I'm a sort of uh, a benign presence early on in somebody's career, so I might be, you know, comforting in some way. <laughs> <laughs> I know you bagpuss or something. Yeah, right. And do you? I mean, do you like that? Um, well, I don't know. It's funny. I always, but sometimes when I get frustrated about the work side of things, you know, people go, "Oh, but Toby, everybody really likes you," or whatever, and you sort of go. Yeah, but I don't. I want people to think I'm brilliant. I don't. I don't but I, you know what I mean. It's the work. It's the work. Um, but I don't. But I think that's quite complicated where that that comes from. In the sense that I've thought about this a lot recently about how, and particularly in terms of things like social media, how much of what we do is there's there's signals thrown out to seek the approval or the positive feedback of other people, which is not a bad thing in its way, but it is an odd and perhaps not a particularly healthy thing to be doing and what a surprise people that do it a lot of people that go out and seek the vocal and manual affirmation of total strangers on a nightly basis you know um, <laughs> why did you choose that for a living because i'm massively secure yeah. and uh, uh, so it's um so does it come yes i suppose 
the answer to the question, I guess, is, and I might do this a lot where I go down funny alleyways, is, um, is that I think looking, looking back, I sort of, I'm, I'm pleased that there are a lot of comics who feel that they've benefited from playing a very nice gig and that I, I, I am, that, you know, and they've, they feel I deserve some credit for that. I'm not sure that I do. I needed a, I needed, I needed ten minutes filling. So I wasn't being, you know, I, I wasn't being kind. I was, I was, I was filling a spot that I needed. And those that were good, who happened to carry on, uh, you know, might go. Oh, and an early gig where I had a nice time and it boosted my confidence was excess malarkey and Toby was nice. Um, but that's got, I think that's got very little to do with their subsequent success or anything. But obviously, it's a nice, it's a nice trail to follow if you're a successful act looking back and what do you do you think of yourself as a success no no um i i i feel like i i and i don't wish and i'm not doing this to feel sorry for myself either i don't like moaning acts and i think sometimes people in this industry there's a lot of people who are sort of cross with other people for doing well and i never felt in competition because I, I with an acting background if you or i Stuart both if there was a production of Hamlet next Saturday and you and I both auditioned for Hamlet one of us would get it and the other one wouldn't however you are on the frog and bucket this weekend that's not stopping me from being on the frog and bucket the following weekend sure so it's less of a competition in in that way and also I think one person's funny is another person's not not so funny and I think it's like comparing the Mona Lisa to custard you know the people are after different things so again if somebody that I don't rate that much has got a, a telly job I don't sort of think, oh, well, that should be me. I think that's a sort of pointless, even though there are jobs I think I could be perhaps doing. Um, I think I'm never quite impressed the right people. I'm not very good at um, uh, at, at, at sort of putting myself... When, you know, when, when something really important is on the cards, I usually muck it up. Um, but, I've, but then again, I've been lucky in lots of areas as well, and I've always kept busy. I think because I've always expected not to impress anybody. I've produced a lot of work that by accident some of it's got some sort of traction. But that's because, um, you know, I never thought... I remember, you know, when I was at college and all the kids that thought they were the best actors in the world never made it. But I, I just hoped I was good but kept putting on plays myself and giving myself good parts because I wanted to be doing it. And, and therefore, I think I never had that expectation that it would be anything other than really hard work and, and, and continual sort of failures and knockbacks. What sorts of, uh, what sorts of experiences are you referring to when you say... Um, like, can you give us some examples of things where you had the chance to impress? Um, and well, I feel, I feel as well. I should caveat this by saying I want you on the show because you're an excellent comedian. <laughs> I feel there's always a danger when I take for granted the background of my guest, the times I've seen you've been brilliant, the shows of yours that I've really enjoyed. We haven't kind of covered that stuff yet. We've kind of gone in uh, accidentally into some of the sort of tougher aspects yeah. of it. But let's let's start from the from the basis that you are excellent. And well, then, thanks. <laughs> I think that's fair. Well, I think there's examples of things. I think it's, again, it's, I mean, we, you know, we all think perhaps, um, you know, I'm articulate enough to be on just a minute or I'm clued up enough on the news to be in the news quiz. But I totally accept that there's a whole big stream of pool of comics and, and I'm not even on the radar of those people, partially because of geography and partially because I'm, who, nobody needs another middle-aged 40-odd middle-class man who sounds like me. I, I, the only times are things like when it was Doctor Who's 50th anniversary and I've been to the West End with a show about Doctor Who. I've had a Sony-nominated radio programme about Doctor Who 
And um, there were lots of talking head comedians in all of those programmes. They're not even things I particularly aspire to do, but it would be 400 quid that would be useful. It would be a bit of telly... It's not even... That's the it's thing. your angle, mate. But, but, <laughs> and also, when it's, the worst thing is it's not something you particularly covered. When you don't even get some crappy talking head show that actually doesn't really matter, you think, well, I can't get that. How on earth am I going to do the things I really want to do? Um... And, and I've got, funny, I've got a friend who produces some of those programmes and he put me on a list of comics that he wanted to use. And, of course, the, the channel people come back and go, well, we don't know who that is, use this person and this person, who are people that don't... The, this was about sort of old telly, which is something I sort of you know, talk about in a pub for fun. Um, and, um, and, and he said it was really frustrating because I had to use these two comics that didn't know anything... And I ended up spending, I'd spend a thousand pounds on each of them and then not using anything that they said because they didn't have anything to say. But they're on the list. And, and he said to them, But well, how come they're on this? They said, Oh, they've got a you know, higher profile. And I looked at them both up, they've got 7,000 fewer Twitter followers than me. So mm. that's the sort of annoyance. And again, I don't think of that as currency. However, when it is used as against you as a sort of, Oh, yeah, well, we can't employ you because you don't have that much profile, you go, Well, I've actually built this profile without having any platform apart mm. from the stuff I've said and done myself. But then it doesn't count as currency. It only does if, you know. But I, this is terrible because I intended not to do this to come on and sort of moan because I'm not, I'm, I'm not like that. My attitude isn't like, there's an act, There was an actor I, I knew called Ray Lunnan and when I was preparing his obituary for The Guardian, uh, I, I found a quote from his where he said, I've never complained because nobody ever told me that this was going to be easy. And that's definitely what I think. And I hate moaning comedians. The fact that I'm still doing it after 23 years is an achievement. I've had some opportunities as a writer, say, I know proper writers who've never had a play on Radio 4 and I sort of fell into that remarkably easily, all things considered. And I think there's a lesson there in going, the things where the stakes are high, where you've got really huge expectations, where you think they could change your life, are the ones you screw up. And then I managed to get plays on Radio 4 and things like that that I never really sort of looked for and that somebody asked me to pitch a thing and it happened, it happened. And I bet there are writers who sort of List, you know, watch my stuff and sort of go, God, I've been knocking on the door of Radio 4 for years and I haven't had a look in. Who's this guy? He's not even a proper writer. So it's all relative and I think you have to not lose sight of that because I'm not, I'm not somebody that sits at home whinging, even though deep down I don't feel successful because I think, unfortunately, I was... Uh, my genetic makeup includes a glass that is half empty. What... Uh, that's a lovely sentence. I'm just enjoying that sentence. What... Um, what is what are the other elements of your genetic makeup as a comic? Well, it's interesting. I think because I wanted to when I started, I thought it was important that comedy said something else. I thought it's one thing to get a laugh, but if you get a laugh while making people think about racism, then that's really and I, you know, I watched but Bill Hicks was a huge revelation, excuse the pun, to me when I was a student and thought, wow, that's what you could do with comedy. And when I was even younger, you know, Ben Elton, you know, saying things that were funny but meant something. That's what I thought was important. Um, as I've got older, I found I get, I'm, I'm much better when I'm sort of, and you can be no less profound, I think, if you're talking about things that people, whatever their um, disposition, sort of agree with. I, I now sort of, my, my, um, the things I think about are about ageing, about not having a place in society, about being, you know, um, 
about being on the scrap heap, about all sorts of things. But I'm I'm amused by all of those things. I'm I'm amused by failure and the failure that we sort of feel. And I'm quite happy to sort of talk about. And that's that seems to fit me like a glove. And I'm really enjoying as a as a as a comic just sort of going on and riffing on on the fact that I'm falling apart. <laughs> and I think I perhaps look slightly better. And I, I also think for you know early on I tried to be. I was slightly worried about the accent that I have and that people would judge me because of that. So what I did was I dropped it a little bit. I wore a leather jacket and I tried to be... And, of course, audiences can smell what is bogus. And 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 the more I try to do that, I think the less... So, I mean, I got away with it sometimes because we all do it gigs, but I think when I actually went on at somewhere like The Frog and instead of going, well, oh, they won't like me if I sound like this, I'll go, I sound like this and what are you going to do about it? And they'll say, oh, you're a middle-class rank. And I go, well, I've actually meant, made that joke, but better than you just have. So it sort of disarms the heckle in a way. Because if you go and go, look at me, I look like a, uh, I look like the result of an experiment where they failed to clone a geography teacher. You know, and they go, oh, it does, doesn't it? And you go, well, yeah, and you can't say that now, because I already have. So actually embracing the best advice I got from a friend of mine was when I was doing a gig, and I'd been going a couple of years, and he said, that was the best you were tonight, because there were only 16 people in. And I just went, oh, this is going to be awful, and threw myself into it. And I said, what, why, why did that work? Well, I riffed about Pringles and all sorts of... It was just... But it was brilliant. And he, and he said, because that's the first time I've seen you be you. So I spent all the time trying to be, oh, shall I be like Jack D or shall I be Bill Hicks? And actually, it takes most comics, you know, eight to ten years to find out that the best voice that they can speak in is the one that they were born with or their own, you know, because people like what is genuine. You know, comics like John Bishop were so, were so good so immediately because what you saw was what you got. I mean, it's a brilliant comic as well, but there was that streak of, yeah, he's, he's real, I buy him. People don't like artifice in stand-up, even though a lot of it's artificial. It's not like acting where you buy the fact that somebody's put on a costume. If people think they can... If, if people think that you're putting on some sort of front, I don't think they, they warm in the same way. Did you see that happen to any now very big comics as they came through XS? Did you see anyone kind of try and then discover authenticity? Oh, now I don't know. There's an interesting thing. I mean, I've seen... I mean, I can think of a comic who's tried several different identities, to, um, but I'm not sure. Cause I don't well, the thing majority. is, if you, if you don't name them, then we can talk in detail about those identities. Without, <laughs> <laughs> do you see what I mean? Like, we can get something out of, out of that element of it without it just being kind of gossip. Well, I don't, I'm just trying to think, because a lot of... Or, or if they're successful enough, you could probably name them. I mean, I know, I know that there's a... There's a lovely chap called Andy Watson, actually, who's a comic from Manchester, who's, who's, who had an early flirt. He was, he was, well, he was an act, and I said this to him, he was an act that when he started, I thought he's never going to be a comedian because he's too haphazard and he's too... And he actually grafted, and this is what a lot of people don't talk about when they talk about stand-up, is, is how hard the very best comedians work. I mean, Sarah Millican is one of the comics that's done every slot at Excess Malarkey, who's probably one of the hardest-working people on the circuit mm. and deserves every inch of the success that she's had uh, but Andy I remember tried he, he got it cracked and he did well and then one day he came and he said yeah I think I'm going to try one liners and he sort of did that and he had one gig where it sort of worked so that was it and then he took him and did it at excess and it went absolutely nowhere we just like Andy it wasn't it was stop keep trying don't keep trying to mess with the formula and I think if you think too much about what you're trying to do um, again it's sort of uh, I don't think you can contrive. I don't think you can... The best on-stage personalities, I don't think you can contrive. Um, I mean, you know, Russell Kane, you might think he's 
made up unless you have a conversation with him off stage. Adam Bloom, you know, yeah. you, might, yeah. you, you might think, you might think, come on, they're, they're not like that off stage. Yes, they are. Harriet Dyer, who's this, you know, brilliant sort of jangle of both, is like that off stage. I mean, obviously, we 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 heighten everything, but it's got to come from a place of reality. Does that mean that there are comics out there who are being themselves and are authentic, but who won't become massive because their authentic selves isn't interesting enough to an audience? Oh, gosh, that's interesting. Um, well, I mean, the flaw in my... my uh, the flaw in my plan there is, of course, some very successful comics are have relatively sort of bland onstage personalities, but they're very good at... You know, Michael McIntyre is not a is not a. Uh, there's no damage there. There's not. There's or if the, you know, his act is not about that. It's just about going. I know that, but I couldn't say it as funnily. Oh, that's and that's why he's successful. But there's no. But I, I suppose I'm I'm drawn to 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 somebody who'll do something that's got a little a, a little sort of thing of vulnerability about them. And I think the longer you go the more um, confident you are in um, exposing that. But even as I'm talking now, I'm thinking, well, that's perhaps I'm just doing this all through a filter of myself in an attempt to sound more insightful than I actually am, because then you've got somebody like Gary Delaney, who just does really good jokes and is, you know, and is somebody I could watch all day. So I don't know. Thank you. That's a really (laughs) honest answer. answer. (laughs) That's a great answer. I'm just wondering, because you're in a position having seen so many yeah. comics develop. But, Phil, but, but, but actually, Phil, I remember Phil Ellis, when he started, was even then doing stuff about Leanne. You know, I mean, I, and, and to the extent I thought, God, this guy's just split up with his girlfriend. He's 15 years later, and I go, is she alive? Is she, what's <laughs> happened there? I mean, get over it, Phil. Um, I, I think... I think what actually happened... Because I always think this with Edinburgh shows, I actually think the jokes are the easy bit. The jokes write themselves. If you can't write a joke, you should be doing it anyway. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of the, the, the... It's growing into your own skin, really. And Phil, I remember, he did a whole extended thing about soup that had that sort of nonsensical, inventive energy that Phil has. But where Phil, I think, really turned the corner is where he, he brought more of that damage to it and the autobiographical stuff even though it was not and the slightly darker edge to it he was always sort of whimsically inventive um but again that might just be what I, what i what appeals to me because i like i'm i'm you know i'm drawn to the the darkness in a way because i think you know humor has always been a way of i think you know you know humor is there for a purpose and it's and, and actually when it deals with the darker side of things i'm that interests me because you have that argument about, oh, I shouldn't have said that, but I found that funny. So should he not have said that? And we have these big arguments now about stuff that's obviously a joke that's dark that now people take offence to. And, and I've certainly changed in that regard. And I, you know, I would have been Mr. Right on 23 years ago. And now I go, oh, let them sing fairy tale of New York. Grow up. Um, so, but I wonder if that's just a journey you go on as you get older and I've fallen into that cliche of being, you know, a liberal in my... And well, I'm not conservative. I would never vote for the Conservative Party with a big C, but I'm certainly more conservative with a small C than I was when I was younger. So 
with that that kind of being drawn to the, I mean, maybe darkness, but maybe vulnerability. Mm. Do did you feel did you feel vulnerable as a child? Yes, I mean, um, I don't have an oeuvre, but there's a running thread through my work where I was talking to my uh, family about this the, the, the past few days just gone. Um, yeah, I was the youngest of four kids, and there's a year gap pretty much between the top three, and then there's four years, and then there's me. Um, and my dad left when I was four, and uh, he was a doctor, and uh, he, he went to live to Germany, didn't, so he didn't give us any money. Uh, and mum was suddenly on her own, bringing up four kids on her own. And a charity that looked after bereaved doctors' families um, offered to pay to send me to the local boarding school, um, which never would have happened. You know, my mum was a guys hospital trained old lefty nurse who was struggling. So I, I went to this private school um, where I didn't fit in because I was poor, because I had crap trainers and, and you know... So I... But then I came home and I spouted all the wisdom I'd learnt at, at boarding school and obviously came across as a precocious little what's-it in, in the home environment. So I, I, I found myself crying a lot at home because I was the other there, then crying a lot at school because I was the other there. So then Mum, bless her, to rescue me when I was 11, took me out of that environment and sent me to the local comprehensive school where I sounded like this uh, and had and my education was advanced because of the nature of the boarding school so I didn't fit in there and I was terrible at sports so and it's the cliche I did school sports day and uh, the 800 metres which I thought anybody could master and there was a young lad called Sean Walsh not the comedian who was a big sort of flapping guy with a very wet handshake who was a bit pasty and even he beat me and I wasn't I wasn't physically Bat, you know, you wouldn't pick me out as being the overweight kid or the. You know, I was just <laughs> pathetic, and and even when Sean Walsh, I was like, oh, come on, I could beat Sean Walsh, and I didn't. <laughs> I did, and the only thing I could think to do was I thought, well, I'll I'll collapse just before the finishing line and pretend to die, uh, because that will cover up the shame I feel for the fact that even Sean Walsh beat me. And of course, I got a massive laugh from all the, the kids who. And I did do the thing of beating the bully in the school playground by doing jokes at him. You know, he said, do you want to die? And I went, of course, that's a ridiculous question. You're going to die. Well, of course I am. After all, I'm only mortal, all that. But it, and it got, and kids listened and laughed and went, oh, you leave him alone. So it's the, it's the real cliche of the telling it's jokes It's so funny because that cliche doesn't come up all that often when no. I talk to people about their... Their school, I suppose it's a refer to occasionally. It's nowhere near as prevalent as everyone thinks. But it's interesting, I still didn't want to be a comedian. I wanted to be an actor um, because I didn't have the confidence to, to to put my name to being any... You know, I didn't think I, as me, could be interesting enough or captivating enough. But I thought I was good. I was good at hiding. I'm good at accents and I could... And I, I know my Shakespeare. I've I, I read... You know, I, living in the countryside in the middle of nowhere, I read every Shakespeare play over one summer holidays in order to educate myself in Shakespeare, which I've always been drawn to, largely because Shakespeare plays had big casts and in those big casts was usually from act, an actor from Doctor Who. I mean, it's as transparent as that. That's part of my Shakespearean education was because <laughs> Varga the Ice Warrior was in The Tempest down the road. Uh, and... Um, uh, but I wanted to, uh, so I wanted to act, and it, but I loved comedy, and I used to tape Whose Line Is It Anyway? I used to take the young ones and drop the dead donkey and watch them over and over again. But I still thought that, uh, and, and all the Saturday Lives, and I watched the, you know, the Victoria Wood, um, where she does this, the audience with Victoria Wood. So I watched stand-up as well. Um, but and, and the comedy store, you know, the fact we're sitting in the comedy store now, even when the comedy store came to Manchester, I thought, well, yeah, but I'll never... 
you know, that's pro- really good comedians play there. I still felt like a bit of a, a fraud, a sort of actor pretending to be a comedian. And there is a subset of those. I think I'm, I, I like to think I've earned my stripes now, but, but there, there have been a number of, you know, a- actor comedians who are people that just use the stand-up circuit to get a bit of attention and, and move away. And I, I probably was one of those at the beginning, but now I've, I've learned that the art of stand-up is one of all of its own and, and, and is a, a mighty one and a fine one and you have to be good to do it. But I still, I never thought I'd play here. So the fact that I now do do the comedy store and I've, you know, done weekends at the comedy store, I even closed the comedy store Manchester um, a, a couple of years ago because uh, I quite often compare, that's a safety valve, that's a bit boring to go into, but and, and, and sort of go, oh, no, I can't do a set. And then they asked me once, and they said, could you come do some sets at the store? I was like, well, I'll be awful. And of course, I was fine. Um, and I closed the comedy store, and I thought, do you know what? I've exceeded my expectations. Nothing ever happens now. I was at one point a, an act that was deemed, you know, an, a, they're not a charity here to close the comedy store on, on a bill that was really good. And I held my, I was absolutely, I was as good as anybody, you know, they didn't find me out. Um, and I, that, I, I take great pride in that because I've always felt like a, a bit of a charlatan, a bit of an imposter. I, I think sometimes when you run your own gig as well, people sort of go, yeah, but he's only gets the work because he runs his own gig, you know. Yeah, do people say that or do you say that? You worry that people Maybe say I that. Maybe I worry it's a funny that people one, isn't say it? that. I've yeah. closed the comedy store and it was and I was worried about it and felt like an imposter and did great and came off and went, oh, that's one of those things. I'll always have that. Yeah. And then, you know, the next time you're feeling awful about something, you don't always think of things like that. Do you know what I mean? Oh, because no, they're... I still always think of that man who was third row in when I was doing a one-man show, you know, who, who didn't laugh sure. once. And you, they're the ones you remember. Or that bloke who said you were the worst comic he's ever seen or whatever. You always, you always think of the people who don't like you. Let's go back and ungloss over that thing you glossed over there about the difference between comparing here. You know, you said just a moment yes. ago. Well, I think I'm a cat. I think I'm a coward. I mean, I still get. I'm not. It's funny. I'm not nervous about gigging. And if I'm before I go on stage, I, I don't. I'm not one of those annoying people in the dressing room. But I, increasingly, I, as I get older, I think that gigs gigs loom in the diary a bit and make me worry a bit. And I've turned down some work actually where I've just gone. I think this lead up to that would be too stressful. Um, and, and, and I think comparing um, became a sort of safety valve for me because you're hiding behind a job. So as the compare, well, one, it amuses me endlessly that people don't think you're a comedian. And come sure. up and go, yeah, yeah. you are just as good as the comedians. And I always go, so do these people watch a trailer and go, God, that, do you know what? All they need is some extra scenes in that mm. and a plot. And it, but that would make a marvellous film. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think, because if you're a Comparing, you do a line, say, that doesn't get a laugh. You go, well, that's all right, because now I'll tell them to turn their phones off or, or instruct them when the interval is... There, there, are, there are mechanical things that you can do to buy you a bit of time that make them listen to you. Um, now, this, again, it might just be a psychological pl- trick I play on myself, but it takes the pressure off of having to just be funny. Um, and I think I am a funny comparer, and I, I, I do a lot of sort of chatting to the audience and... And, and riffing and, and inventing stuff in the moment. But I still think I'm just sort of explaining... I'm spending 15 minutes long-windedly, as you'll have noticed for this conversation, I go off in lots of different directions. And, and that's maybe what I'll do. I'll go, please switch off your mobile phones because, oh, you've got an eye patch, what's going on, or whatever. Um, but it's all, it's all housed within a structure of this is what you have to do. Yes. And, I will, and I like to think... Uh, an act have said this to me, so I, I, I won't get an act on... To a 
difficult audience. So I like to think I'm, even if it means I have to take one for the team, I will do it because I take the job of being a compere very seriously. And actually, I think some people who are very good comedians aren't very good compares because in a way they're too good. Perhaps, I, perhaps I'm blessed with not being a good enough comedian <laughs> to be a bad compare. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that that is a nobility. That's a nobility to say, I'm going to do the job of a compare right here. Well, it says, and I think maybe... To do it properly I see, It sort of goes back to the acting thing where you're, you're, you're a member of a company, you're part of a production, you know, where your job isn't necessarily the one that gets all that, that, that everyone goes away talking about, but you know that Hamlet wouldn't have been any good if Osric had screwed up, you know. So if you're Osric, you, you do a really good Osric, but then, and you can be a really funny Osric, don't be a funny Osric when Hamlet's dying. Do you know what I mean? Because it's Hamlet's, t- you know. Have you heard Roadie by Tenacious D? I, I, uh, <laughs> no, I'm afraid I haven't. You'll enjoy it. It's a, it's a song about this, you know, it's about the importance of the roadie to the rock. Game. Right. And uh, it has a similar, there's a similar uh, tone in there. I shall fire up the Tenacious D archive on my iPhone, which <laughs> I, I'm sure you'll imagine is swelling. <laughs> So this is Toby, uh, a real pleasure to speak with Toby. We'll be talking to him a little bit more at the end of this episode or towards the end. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the feeling of being surplus as a white stand-up comedian, a white male middle-aged stand-up comedian. And I think Toby talks about it in a very uh, gentle and, uh, well, how can I put this? How can I articulate what he does as well as he does. Maybe uh, maybe I'll just leave it to him. But um, I, I had some thoughts as to whether to leave this in or to sort of put it in the insider material, just sort of to avoid starting arguments, really. But I think, um, I think what Toby has to say is really fascinating, and I applaud him for actually saying it. I think the point that he let's have this chat afterwards <laughs> because I don't want to I don't want to undermine anything he's going to say but I was really fascinated to hear it um, and if you would like to go to www. who says that anymore me comedianscomedian.com slash insiders you can join up and become an insider member of the insiders club and you can hear another 20 minutes or so of Toby talking about his brilliant contribution to a radio show commemorating the life of Spike Milligan as well as waxing lyrical about the time he punched a heckler moving on moving on uh, go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you would like to hear about that now before we get back into this conversation just a couple of notices uh, my free show is now available on YouTube like I mean it last year's tour show is now available to watch for free you can find that at youtube.com slash dead parrot or just go to YouTube and type in my name and uh, I hope you all enjoy that there is a five pound version available to buy if you go to comedianscomedian.com slash special I'm going to put that on a special magical advert which is going to be digitally inserted into all of the back catalogue episodes so apologies uh, if you hear it twice on this one this is kind of the uh, the day of releasing it so um uh, apologies if you've heard that twice likewise the second leg of tour dates have just been released for my end of comedy tour that's uh, a show which i've just started taking out to tour we've done it so far in leicester in maidenhead and in falmouth in glorious falmouth hey comedians listening to this go and perform at the falmouth poly it's about 110 120 seater we got it almost full and uh, it was absolutely joyful what a lovely bunch of people and what a hellish drive there and back in a night i'm never doing that again but um thank you to everyone 
one who's been coming out to the tour so far, comedianscomedian.com slash tour, and you can see all of the new dates that have been uh, that have been released and those that are happening over the next couple of months. It's official. I'm doing Edinburgh. I'll tell you more about that uh, nearer the time. And, uh, and yes, you know, I've been sort of dithering over it for the last couple of weeks. That is now happening. Um, and that is all I've got to tell you for now. So let's get back into this conversation with Toby Haydock. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. I have a, a question from a listener, um, oh, Josh McCauley, which is, his question is, Excess Malarkey is one of the only nights I've attended where the front row or two is consistently the same group of people sat in the same formation. Yeah. How does this affect Toby's approach to emceeing versus clubs <laughs> or nights with a more conventional audience? Well, indeed. That's um, a well-researched that's question. That's a very well-researched And it's interesting and it's difficult. And one of the problems with having a gig like Excess is, of course, because we were, we were very quite successful early on and people loved it because it was a... a, a you know, it was an independent gig. Obviously, nobody's making any money out of it. The audience was always nice, and it was a success in Manchester. So everyone goes, great. But then the circuit being what the circuit is, you suddenly hear people go, oh, yeah, well, it's not as good as they think it is. And you go, well, we're not... We don't think, well, I'm just trying to do a gig, you know. Um, uh, and, and I'm conscious now that when you have the comfort of a front row that is 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 a very supportive... Um, sort of baseline of, of audience that you know you can sort of rely on to be there and who, who are there with the gig's best interests at art is that you don't want to appear like a clique. You don't want a new person to come in. I, my thought is always, if somebody comes in here for the first night, and this is why the gig was successful early on, is because I had no experience at all, but my thought was, if people come in, I want them to come back. And if it's their first time, I don't want them to go away and go, that was good. I want them to go away and go, I can't believe I paid a quid and saw this act, that, that, whatever. It was 50p, it was a pound, then it was a pound, now it's three. Uh, three for members, five for non-members. But um, I, I thought all we've got is, 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 is we've got a good show, but I need people to, 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 to want to come back, otherwise I'm, I'm lost. So it's, it's very nice having that front row, and I try and make it sort of 
all-inclusive, but I am sometimes aware that it can look like, you know, you're, you're just messing about with your mates, and I don't want it to be that. So sometimes I talk to these twins at the front, because Richard and Jonathan, the twins, who've got a marvellous laugh, who are very supportive guys, but almost to say to the headliner, don't talk to these two people because everybody who comes to excess for the first time goes, oh, these two look funny, I shall talk to them. The audience will find, and the audience goes, people do this all the time, talk to anybody else. Um, it does mean it's, as I said, I, I'm very pleased if there's somebody on the second row, say, that I've never seen before, because I could go, oh, thank goodness, I could talk to you, because I do quite like talking to people, and there's nothing, there's nothing I haven't said to the front row, and sometimes I do find myself getting a bit bogged down in that. Um, but quite often, I mean, I, I, I don't talk to people anyway. I just tell them about all the things that have gone wrong in my week. That seems to be it's quite cathartic. <laughs> How much preparation do you put into that? Is none. It, none. Do you, none. Do you scribble, do you write down? No, I don't write anything. Boiler, anything, no. postman, nothing. I haven't written anything down in, apart from Edinburgh shows, I haven't written anything down in 15 years. Um, do you clock things happening during the week on a Wednesday morning? You drop your toast and you think, well, maybe I'll... Yeah, I sort of I mull over things and I try to walk now as well in order to collect my thoughts. Um, J- Jason Cook's a very good friend of mine. I haven't seen him enough recently, but I remember him saying, you know, and, and, and perhaps I used it as an excuse because I am a lazy man, um, is that he, he saw me do a gig and he said, you're so much better when you're just sort of riffing. And I did a thing about the Christmas markets a few years ago at Mirth on Monday. And he went, when did you think of that? I said, well, I just did it. And he went, you're so much better because you... And I think there's something about the fact that I'm scrabbling for a word and I get all more heated up and blah, and I think I could talk quite quickly, but also not lose my enunciation and all that sort of thing. And that's all part of my shtick. And, um, and I think I use Jason, who's a comic I admire greatly, saying, yeah, much better when you make it up to go, well, I never need to write down enough. That's <laughs> me off the hook. Um, but but I, and I've spoken to people about this. They said, well, you, you can't spend ages feeling guilty about your working methods. If you're still, you know, I'm, I must be doing something right because I'm working. So if I get very bored sitting at a computer and typing stuff out... Uh, and my way of doing it is to have a few... It's a cliche with with Roz on the door at Excess when I go, oh, God, Roz, what am I going to talk about tonight? And she goes, well, you, you say this every week about 90 seconds before you go on, and you're always fine. So, And I've got stuff to fall back on. You know, if, if nothing's coming, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make it look like I've just thought of something that I did three or four years ago. Paul Savage, I think, asked about your... He, he says he remembers from an old interview that you... Uh, you write topically, but you never bash celebrities. Is that right? No, that's an interesting thing. Um, I think, I mean, I certainly would have used to. I used to, I look back at some of the stuff that I did that, you know, I, I don't like at all now. Um, but I think it's quite an easy thing to do. I think it's also um, quite dodgy because you can end up... I remember... I remember doing ah, this. I think this might come from a conversation I was. Well, I remember doing. I used to do a topical sketch show here at the comedy store, and I had a line that I gave a sort of. It was before Life on Mars, and I'd got these sort of two Sweeney Sweeney type policemen, but doing modern policing. So it was like, um, so so one of them had gone undercover as a student, and it was like. Poor swine, you know, he's never got up in the, in the morning since, you know. And it was using sort of Sweeney cliches, but instead of his being a football hooligan, he's being a sort of left-wing sort of... It was a clash of... And it was quite a funny idea. But um, I, I, I had... I gave the line to somebody, to the 
police officer where he said, poor fella, he's standard about... Uh, 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 he, he was about as busy as Patsy Kensit in a rock star's cock factory. Now, I like the line, rocks, I like the idea of a factory that makes rock stars cocks. And Patsy Kensit was sort of well-known at the time because she'd been out with a Gallagher and Jim Kerr from Single Minds. So it was a, it was a, you know, it was a sort of dig at this poor... Oh, well, I then did an episode of Holby City with Patsy <laughs> Kensit and she was absolutely lovely. She was really sweet. And I thought, how do... You know, what a, what a, what a casually unpleasant thing to do. And it made me sort of really think about... And I'd read Charlie Brooker's review saying, you know, he'd stopped being a TV critic because he found he was suddenly rubbing shoulders with parties at people that he'd been really rude about. And I think as you get to know more successful people, and I get really defensive when, you know, I mention a comedian and somebody goes, oh, they're crap, you know. And it's not only somebody that you know is really good, it's somebody that you, you know as a person. And so I find casual sort of rudeness about the ability of somebody that's worked really hard and probably has quite a lot of talent actually um is something to be avoided if at all possible and i don't even bother i don't even bother laying into you know people that i i find dangerous and despicable now like katie hopkins because i just i just i i find it sort of pointless and it just becomes sort of mudslingy and and, and i think you try if you try and make those points in different ways without actually you know laying into a particular individual i think it's I, I, it just seems a little bit less name-calling, a little bit less ad hominem. What other kind of um, tones have you found over the years sit well with you? What kind of what kind of shapes of jokes? What kind of curmudgeonly? Uh, curmudgeonly. <laughs> I'm quite wistful now as well. I do, I something that was not, and I don't sort of do the bits that seem to do well at the moment are not necessarily jokes. I got. Um, I, went, I said, oh, I've got a pocket square here which is just over my heart where, you know, where the colour used to be. You know, and that sort of thing. <laughs> and, and, and I think I fit the sort of... You know, I think I'd have been... If there was an age where you could just... Well, there was, where you could sit in a pipe and be wistful about stuff and people would listen, I would have, I'd have, I'd have prospered. Um, but I find that sort of... I, and and I, I, I... You know, people have said it's a mistake... Um, I'm funny, I've to Richard, Pod, Richard Herring's podcast not long ago, and I came and were really annoyed because I thought, oh, I should have bigged up, bigged up the stuff that I have did, and instead I've sort of, every time you said, oh, you won this award, I went, oh, yes, but that was just a rubbish old thing. I thought, oh, no, you're supposed to, you're supposed to big yourself up because that's what being... And, and, but I think my defence mechanism has always been to take the mickey out of myself. Now, that's partially because of what I was explaining about the frog and bucket and sounding like this. If you do the jokes against yourself, it disarms anybody that might then be aiming those missiles at you. <laughs> Um, um, but I, I like to think I've always been slightly... And I think it's because I would rather be not... Here's a thing. Here. I remember this thing. For, for many years, uh, uh, for many years, I was the warm-up man for University Challenge, and I remember this thing that stuck with me, and there was a, there was a cast photo, a, you know, a cast and crew photo, and we're all sitting there, and I sort of... When I smile, it's sort of apologetic smile. I don't open my teeth, mouth because I don't like my teeth, and um, it's a sort of closed-mouth thing, and it makes my sort of cheeks go up a bit. And one of the crew was sort of looking, and he's a nice guy, a runner, and he was going, oh, you know, so-and-so looks sozzled, and, uh, and, then, and then they sort of said, oh, yeah, let's do a one word for what it says about each person. And so there was, you know, half asleep, blah, blah, blah. Got to me, and he went, yeah, smug. And uh, that killed me, because I, I would rather be thought of as not funny. And he wasn't being me. I was there. He wasn't being... He wasn't mean. He wasn't talking mean. behind your back he, in a he, real... He yeah. thought, because we have to assume a certain amount of confidence, especially in a warm-up job where everything's going a bit crazy and you have to sort of grab the attention and do all this sort of thing. But the... Uh, 
the idea, and I've read a couple of things on forums, and the ones that the ones that really hurt. I remember reading somewhere uh, where they said Toby's not as funny as he thinks he is, and I thought, oh God, no! I, I, most comics. Well, my experience is you. The reason you go on night after night getting laughs from people is not because you think you're funny. It's just that you hope you are. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, you wouldn't need to prove it. Um, and and the idea, actually, the idea that somebody may think I'm too. This comes from my Methodist grandmother, though, who was always putting my mother down and saying, "Oh, you know, Janet's too big for her boots," and she she would rather my mother had not thought she was too big for her boots than actually achieved something, which is actually contrary to actually how most people are successful in life. Is that you have to have a bit of self belief to to get you. So I think there's there's a, there's, a, there's an element of that that idea that you 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 need to know your place. And um, but the idea that. I would rather somebody thought I was not funny than thought I was had ideas above my station or was too cocky, and they're and they're the sort of insults that really hurt me, which is interesting, and I don't know why. The insults that hurt you most are the implication that you have ideas above your station. What do you think is your station? Do you think you have the right to be a comedian? Um, 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 um. Because um, I can um, think of people less funny than you with more of a sense of entitlement towards a place in the comedy industry? Well, I, th- I mean, I always think of myself... To use a sports analogy, I always think of myself as a sort of Paul Collingwood... Uh, that means nothing to me, I'm afraid. Right, well... <laughs> um, Can you unsport this analogy? <laughs> well, well uh, but I, right, so Kevin Peterson is a natural genius cricketer who... Um, when he was on song was absolutely amazing but could also be a bit selfish and blow it and, and, and actually sometimes be acted up Paul Collingwood was not as gifted as Kevin Peterson but he, he, was, he, he still played for England and he still had a good career by doing the very best with the raw material that he had now there are people like say Seymour Mace for example who I just think is a genius is just a funny man Seymour Mace just has to walk on stage and he is funny. He is a natural comedian. Mm. I don't think I fall into that category. But I think I've, through experience, um, a certain amount of stagecraft, a certain amount of persistence, um, I think I've done... I've, I've exceeded my expectations in what I can do. And that's not false modesty because I still think I'm good. If I've been good enough to do... look and sound like I do and have a fiery jongler Saturday night listening to all the acts that I've compared to get on that's that that puts me in a you know I'm aware that puts me in a good place um but I I I sometimes think I've held myself back I think my one-man shows I think my one-man shows were very good but I think they're different from being a a circuit comic and I've always been a bit 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 cowardly about this. You know, if I've, I've got regular Excess Malarkey, I've got regular 99 Club on a Wednesday, I've got regular Comedy Store every second and last Sunday of the month, which means that quite often my agent will say, will you go and do this club next weekend? And I'll go, no. And I think perhaps a proper comic would have the appetite to do some of those. I, I came to a decision that I've sacrificed a pension and holiday pay and all of those sorts of things um, to do a job that I like doing. And it was getting to the point where I'd be doing these gigs that I was capable of doing. Uh, you know, I remember the time when I thought I'd never be able to play Liverpool, and then I got very good at doing Baby Blue, and had, you know, didn't have a bad gig at Baby Blue for for a decade, and was quite proud of the fact that I'd turned a gig that I was worried about into one that I really looked forward to doing. Um, but um, I, I think maybe I feel a bit of a charlatan because I know there are some comics who you know, live, breathe and eat it and, and therefore the idea that they turn down a weekend's work because they don't really fancy it would, means that perhaps I'm not a, a, 
a legitimate comic in that oh, it's way. funny, isn't it? I feel the same things. Isn't that weird that you... I, I suppose it's part of becoming a comic in the first place means that you have to become obsessed with it. You have yeah. to either be or let yourself be obsessed with it, and you have to either work hard or make yourself work very hard. Yeah. You know, you like in the early days, the early years of comedy... You've got to jump at every possible yeah. opportunity to the extent that 10 years, 15 years later, you might find yourself kind of going, oh, the, the old me would have, yeah. would have jumped at this. Well, but equally, this- it is kind of that, what you said about like you've, you've made, we all make sacrifices socially, financially to do comedy. So maybe you do deserve to do the things you want to do. Well, and I'm quite lucky as well in that I have a mosaic of things that, um, you know, earn me a living. So, you know, uh, you know the, the constant stream of character actors from the 1970s, the deaths that occur, mean that I get bits in The Guardian every now and again, you know, which means that I can then go, well, I don't have to go and do that gig in the middle of nowhere for, you know, 80 quid or whatever. Yeah. Um, because I've I've had a piece, but you know I'm not I'm not working this December for for a number of reasons, but but largely because I had two plays on Radio Four in October, and I just and I've got some stuff that I've got to do this month, but it was largely going well. Actually, the Christmas gigs won't get in the way of that because I've essentially bought bought my way out of December thanks to having two two big shows on in October. Let's talk about who. Oh, <laughs> the first time I saw you was on stage in uh, the Cannons Gate in Edinburgh right. many years ago, where you were for fun introduced to the stage by Jason Cook as my friend Toby, who knows everything about Doctor Who. You weren't there doing a set. Toby was comp. Uh, sorry, um, sorry, Jason Cook was comparing. Uh, or doing a set, and for his set in a sort of a late night yes, drunken kind of way, sort of he wheeled monkey. you out. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this this Doctor Who enthusiast is funnier than he has any right to be. <laughs> <laughs> but then I went to see Moth's Ate My Doctor Who Scarf, which yeah. was your your kind of what would you how did you describe that kind of like a breakthrough show, or it, it became was. your kind of your yeah. your kind of cornerstone yeah. show, which was an an hour show at the festival uh, in it. I flabbergasted me to realise was was it two thousand and six? Yes, it's terrifying. Jesus, isn't it? I remember yeah. it very vividly. I can't believe it's that long ago, but I loved that show. It oh, made me laugh you. all the way through, and I cried at the end. I it, remember absolutely loving that. show. And I, I must say, this was before shows made people cry at the end. People, yeah, people's, <laughs> people's dad started dying about two years later. I was. <laughs> That's uh, absolutely right. Um, but and that was an accident, though. But yeah, that that was definitely a breakthrough because I'd up until that point I'd be the nice guy that ran the nice club and I compared there and I I, I compared at the Frog and did you know bits and bobs. But again, being pathologically, I don't drive either, so I try not to travel. So I was doing pretty, but there were loads of gigs, so I was doing pretty well in the northwest. Yeah, I could gig four or five times a week and it not be a problem. Um, and uh, and I went to do this show. Um, uh, and the timing was right, but but I, I had good advice. That friend who said you were funniest I've seen you because you were yourself. He ended up directing my show. He didn't direct it by saying Toby stand there and say that line like that. He was like another eye on it. And we did a few previews, and and and, and we were coming back from Ludlow, where I'm from, and they they kindly put you know put my show on the assembly halls there and loads of my old school teachers came and it was marvellous and I did this really terrible dog of a show where I was getting furious about Doctor Who being cancelled and it was uh, but the bits they liked were the bits where I talked about it when it came back and me watching with my son and, and, and the bits that they responded to were while I was watching Doctor Who when my dad had vanished and my mate just went Mark out what he's called to give him a name check he said take out all the jokes that are about Doctor Who that, that are nothing to do with your life 
Yeah. So it suddenly became, and I told it, the story was told in four different time zones, so some jokes worked backwards and all this sort of thing. Very clever idea, it didn't work at all. Um, and he said, just do the straight narrative, you know, start with you being young and you finding Doctor Who and your dad going away, and end with that lovely bit where you watch Doctor Who with your son, which everybody adored. So that became, so that, and that, came, that came in the middle of the show originally. Um, and, and it became a much more straightforward narrative, and it had that nice story. And it also, it meant that people that came that didn't know anything about Doctor Who understood it and liked yes. it, because no joke was there for Doctor Who fans. Um, and that and that that was the making of that show, and it was very successful. And I yeah, I got uh, I got a big tour out of that and a radio series, and that that sort of moved me, you know, moved me into a, a different category, I guess, and meant that I could sort of embrace and talk about things I hadn't really talked about. And it's, again, it's about finding your voice. I'd I'd wanted to be Bill Hicks, and funny enough, there's some bits in the. Doctor Who show that are a bit political where I go, oh, no, I have to show how liberal I am by slagging off the BMP and doing all this sort of thing. And when they came to be on the radio, the producer went, yeah, I'd lose that bit. because I went, no, this is the important stuff. This is the stuff that shows... I, I, in a way, I was being what would now be termed a sort of social justice warrior and a virtue signaler because I wanted people to know that I, I was a decent and a right-minded person. And I, and, and, and I haven't listened to the show for ages, but those are the bits in the radio show that I hate because they don't work, they're unnecessary. It's a story about a guy who's lost his dad, then bonding with his own kid, and in the middle he goes, and by the way, just to let you know, I think the BNP are awful. And, and, it, and it's sort of un- unnecessary. And it was a real lesson in, one, listening to a producer. And if a producer who's decided to put your work on the radio has a, has, has a suggestion, perhaps they have it because they're on your side and they like you. Uh, and and I've, so all the other stuff that I've, I've written, I've been very much more humble in terms of the feedback I get from the producer, and I go, well, they're on my side, they're not the enemy. I think I spent loads of early time in my career, and I see comics do this now, of treating everything as the enemy and unfair, and actually, the, the way you're going to get the local press to cover you is not to go, oh, they keep, they keep missing us out, they're awful. I remember I won an award here in Manchester, uh, the City Life, uh, and I went on, and we weren't featured in that. Excess wasn't featured in that month's City Life. So I went on at the City Life thing and slagged off City Life for not featuring, uh, for not listing us. So, of course, in the next City Life, they mentioned this awards and didn't mention mine. And I was like, well, why have they done that? Well, the reason I, they didn't do that is because I was rude about them. Whereas if I'd just gone, oh, this is marvellous. And it's so hard sometimes for Excess to get column inches amongst all the bigger clubs, so it'd be really nicer. And they'd go, oh, yeah, he's all right. We'll make sure... Next time, we'll make sure we include him. I spent too much... And I think there's a lesson there about sort of furious comedians. I think, you know, and, and you know, certain comedians that we know who's... Um, Who've, who felt that the fact that comedy has been, as they see it, unfair on them has, has meant that they've, you know, changed, changed themselves or their direction or that's manifested itself in bitterness is not terribly attractive. Uh, and I think it took me a while to realise that actually the sort of benignness I have in everyday life is perhaps, is perhaps a more attractive quality in a comic than being furious, except when I get furious about milk and stuff, but that's OK, because that's funny. Why Doctor Who? Um, well, I think because Do- because I, just for the benefit of the listener, you are not simply a fan. You are you can identify 
uh, you can probably tell us who the grip was on a particular yeah, episode. Sure. I mean, you, I, 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 you have an incredible knowledge. Sadly, I literally could tell you the name of any actor that was in any episode of Doctor Who between 1963 and 1989, and I didn't sit down and learn that as a party trick. It's just what stayed in my brain. I don't know how to wire a plug, but for some reason I can remember that stuff. Uh, and um, I think... I think it's because I think I may be, and I'm looking into this at the moment. I think it, I, I mean, I think there's a possibility that I'm somewhere on the well. We're all somewhere on the spectrum, but um, but um, and I don't. Know, but 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 I think I think if you have a, a sort of mind like mine, um, the fact that something has a big, vast history of things that you can sort of piece together is quite attractive to to the sort of jackdaw meanderings of my own. Psyche, you could piece all these things together, and um, uh, and I think, but I think it's mostly that that I think Doctor Who as a character is there for people that feel like an outsider, but who aren't physically robust. So sometimes, you know, uh, 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 I, I liked Han Solo and I thought he was cool because he was smart and clever and funny, but he was also, you know, very handy physically and could shoot and do all this. Uh, Doctor, Doctor Who doesn't use weapons. Uh, Doctor Who doesn't kill. Generally, there are, you know. Don't write in. I know. <laughs> I know the bit in episode two of Dare the Daleks where he shoots those two ogrons. Yeah, you know. um, but but I, I think he's there to say to kids that perhaps aren't as robust. Um, look, there's a guy here that, and I used to dress. I mean, I still dress in a way that makes strangers think that I want their opinion on what I'm wearing. Um, and I certainly used to dress like that at school because I was the youngest of four. I had hand-me-down clothes. So my, I remember my mother saying. I said, Mum, people take the mickey out of me because I'm wearing flares. And she said, they're not flares, they're straight legs. And it's like, well, you just tell, you tell that to the kid that's just mocked me for wearing flares. He doesn't care what the correct <laughs> thing is. I'm wearing clothes that were trendy in the 70s and now look awful. Um, but, but so Doctor Who's always dressed a bit eccentrically and, and, and has always used sort of knowledge and eloquence and books um, to get himself out of trouble and wit to get himself out of trouble rather than physical violence um, and and sort of confidence and all that sort of thing. So then there's a, you know there's a big gay following for Doctor Who because I think you know there's certain generations of gay kids who felt like they were outsiders who needed somebody that was you know a bit flamboyant and uh, a bit cheeky to uh, uh, and again an outsider to to represent them. So I think I think he's a, he's a, a hero that says look you can you can not look like everybody else you can be a bit strange as far as everybody else is concerned and you can be a bit bookish and you can still save the universe and you don't do it like in star trek when you've got the best ship in the fleet and the best crew in the fleet you've got a police box that doesn't work properly and i like that the fact that the, the, the you know the, the, the doctor's ship is broken and doesn't work properly and and that brilliant idea of a police box that's bigger on the inside than the outside which you would just throw out now you'd go that just sounds ridiculous but it somehow works um, but the fact that it's all a bit Heath Robinson also mm. appeals. I, you know, I've I've never liked the thing that's wholly popular. Um, but that's you know, you can reflect that back at me, I guess, for some somehow. Do you think this is very very uh, cod psychology here? But do you think the fact that your dad left when you were a kid is something to do with your excitement about an older male role model who saves the world? Now, I thought my dad might come up because it, because of he, he crops up in my shows and those plays that are out. Uh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that. That he's, I thought that I always thought that the show perhaps filled a gap that my dad left 
because I needed to fill my time and, and you know, we lived out in the countryside and I had to go back to work. So I was on, often on my own having to make my own entertainment. And I'd do that by finding the Doctor Who books on the shelves and writing my own Doctor Who stories and all that sort of thing. I didn't think about the figure of the Doctor himself uh, as, as perhaps filling that void i think that's i think that's very possible i wonder if i didn't i didn't have a male role, role model in my life and 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 he was the one how funny it seems so obvious now but i'd i'd thought of the show rather than the character um but yeah maybe that's what i was looking for what would you change about your career if you had the ability to uh, time travel and talk to yourself, a la, a la Spike and his younger self, oh, or a la the Doctor. It's hard. It's hard, Stuart. I don't know because, uh, you know, a lot of the things that I've done, you know, a lot of the Doctor Who based things, I've, you know, I've done a Doctor Who audios playing opposite Tom Baker and David Warner, two actors that I idolised in my youth, and now, you know, but I've, it, both of them email me. Do you know what I mean? I. I applied to a. You know, I could. There was a chance I could have gone to, you know, Oxford or Cambridge, and um, for various reasons that sort of that screwed up, and I made a couple of mistakes there. And you sort of think, oh, would things have been easy? Would I have met more of the right people? But I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn because I think what I've quite often done in the past is that if I've had a friend that's doing particularly well, I sort of think, oh yeah, and then when when they write a thing, they'll they'll put me in it. And it's only in the past three or four years that I've gone, well. Well, I can write a thing and put me in it, but it's only getting the confidence through. I think being lucky enough with all of the radio plays I've done, but three in particular have done really, really well. I know it's only radio, so it's not. You know, I'm sure the people in the great comedy world don't know, but it's a, it's a, it's it's been enough to prove that the stuff I'm writing is, you know, is of a certain quality. It's to sort of go. I don't you know yeah, why are you why are you waiting for one of your su- friends to get successful to ensure that you get some work when you you could actually you know put, put push yourself forward a little bit more but that's a that's a very recent realization and but i th- i think i you know so so maybe thinking about the oxford thing you know going oh yes but the contacts i could have got well it shouldn't just be you know it's it's i'm, I'm sure there are lots of people who've had great contacts who've who've Who've, who've not done well for various reasons. So I think you always think of the things that you're missing. Would I do anything different? I don't think you can. I'd be very blessed. I've met some, you know, fabulous people. I've worked with some brilliant people um, that, that, you know, that I've, I've, I've had experiences that I always think if I could phone my 10-year-old self and tell him that you'd done this, he'd be very happy. Deep down, I think, yeah, if I told my 10-year-old self I'd met the actor who played Dr. Tyler in The Three Doctors, he'd go, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and the kid in me thinks that, but I think maybe perhaps the, the professional in me goes, yeah, but that's not the same as, you know, being on that telly show or, or having that series or, or playing that role. And I wonder if I'm, if I'm um, giving myself... Uh, if I'm... Um, uh, what's the word? If I'm comforting myself in something that's not actually a professional achievement, you know, meeting that actor or having tea with that actor or whatever, because I loved the idea of meeting and hanging around with actors when I was younger. But but those things were supposed to be because you were a successful actor doing this thing. So the fact that I've had tea with that actor because he did my podcast or because we did this, that or the other, rather than the fact that because I was playing Hamlet and he was playing Claudius, it, you know, it is a different sort of achievement. But also... 
you know, you and I know, I mean, I haven't had a proper job for 20 years. I've, I've, uh, as we record this, it was last Monday, it was 23 years since my first ever go at doing stand-up. Um, and I'm still here. So that's, that's a sort of achievement. I don't think I'll ever be truly happy because that's what drives, happy with the, the work, because that's what drives you to do more. And also I have low expectations, which makes me work hard and, and sometimes holds me back. Sometimes it means I perhaps don't aim as, as high as I should or have the confidence I should. But also I think part of that is a driver to therefore do the good work and not submit anything I'm not happy with, not do anything glibly, not take any... Because you sometimes see comics who are successful, people who are successful, who do a job and sort of just sort of throw it away a little bit because they think, oh, well, this isn't worth my... I still do every job and every gig to the best of my ability because I, I don't have that confidence that it'll all be all right tomorrow. How are you finding getting older within comedy well it's i mean it's interesting there's all see i think i think i've become a better comic i think i fit i think i fit my comic voice more now i i totally i was going to ask that earlier on there's something you like it like for actors you kind yeah. of see a 20 year old actor going oh they'll really suit being 50 yeah do you know what I mean? yeah. <laughs> there's... so so i might yet play false stuff you know I've, that's mm. that that's the nobody was ever going to cast me as romeo but maybe they'd give me false stuff and if i do well enough they'll give me a leer um uh but i do think i fit this voice this this demeanor i think i i i suit being sort of curmudgeonly and disappointed and, and that's quite endearing in a way that perhaps I wasn't when I was younger and, and maybe where I did come across as a bit smug or whatever. Um, and, uh, uh, but it, it's in, I mean, look, I don't want to be one of those um, whinging comics. Who, that, you know, the, the people that hold the purse strings or the exposure are, are looking for an excuse not to give you work because there are so many people out there. And I, it's in, because people say, oh, yeah, what about, you know, the, I have lost, I know I've lost work. And bear with me, listener. I have lost work. I know for a fact I've lost work because um, I've been a white guy. Now, that's not a complaint. I've had two television jobs where I was cast, well, one where I was cast and one where I was essentially told I was, a part had been written for me. Uh, and the first one where I was cast, that you always sign contracts late. So contract let me sign. They said, "Oh, yeah, you look a bit too much like one of the leading men." The leading men were Shane Rich and Sean Dooley. I don't look like either of them. Uh, and a mate of mine was cast in my place, and he happens to be a black actor. Um, I had another thing where somebody said, "I've written a part for you in a thing," and the the name of the part was a joke that was a reference to something I talk about in one of my one man shows. So it was a thing for me, and about. Two months later, I went, well, are you not filming your thing? And they went, oh, yeah, we had a problem. They looked at the cast uh, and it was a bit all, you know, it was a bit all white, so they needed to put some BAME actors in there, so you're now a black woman. Uh, and I texted back, that's the story of my life, mate, in which I will be played by Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> now, this is not a complaint. I'm a student of uh, and a, a, a gorger on old television and the amount of black actors that missed out on play... And they were neither of them were particularly good parts. So me losing out on 400 quid twice in six years is not a problem. Um, and the fact is that, that there are actors and actresses that should have got work 20, 30 years ago that weren't and there's some work to do to redress that balance. And if it means one of the consequences is that is a is a, you know... a somebody who gets bits and bobs of telly here and there not getting quite so many bits and bobs of telly as he once might have done that's a small price to pay 
um, uh, and uh, representation is more important. I also think it's much more important to get uh, disabled performers on, on television who make up 20% of the population and currently uh, I think in the arts the representation is something like 1.8% so there's still, you know, it's not this nirvana for uh, minorities where they are um, uh, treated so much more better than us poor white middle class males. We have to up our game or just be luckier or just have to live with it because actually that's the deal. Oh but it's unfair as Ray Lyman said Nobody told you it was going to be fair. And actually, is it unfair? Uh, I don't think it is. Anyway, I've, I've said but Well I've said, said well said. So, I appreciate you all saying that. It's very easy to... to sorry, go on, let me know. But, I don't but by the you. same token, it does mean I've missed out on being a talking head on a show about Doctor Who because they've got somebody who's a woman who's never watched Doctor Who. But again, it doesn't really matter. But then again, when I'm sitting at home, it does get a bit annoying and a bit in, in fury. But... On a personal level, I think I'm entitled to feel annoyed, but also know that in the great scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and actually, you tend to find all the people that moan about... Um, I mean, I remember people moaning about the bodyguard because um, the three first police people you saw in the first episode were women, female police marksmen, female police sergeant, and, and then the bomb disposal expert guy at the end was called Chung. So it's like, oh, how many Chinese-origin bomb disposal experts are there? It does. I mean, if that's going to take you out of a show, you've got a problem. I mean, I suppose it's because I'm used to watching a program about a man who travels through space and time and puts boxes bigger on there. But I, I think you have to be looking for that sort of stuff to get annoyed about it. I don't know how many Chinese origin bomb disposal experts there are, and it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It seems to work perfectly fine to me. And it's and there were so many other things wrong with the bodyguard uh, as drama and in terms of structure. Uh, I, I, I could talk to you all day about, but uh, but that if that's what bothers you, well, you're the reason that it's being done in the first place. Because if you see political correctness every time you see a black person who isn't playing a cannibal or a mugger you're the problem do you know what I mean um, and so yes getting older I'm aware I'm of a demographic that is less employable than if I'd been born 40 years ago well do you know what 40 years ago I could have been you know born betwixt the thighs of the queen and I'd be Prince Charles now but you know there's no point in worrying about any, any of that and I think it ill behoves us in, particularly in this industry to to to, uh, to to win because it's not that important on a, you know in the grand scheme of things if if a really good comic perhaps doesn't get a job that, that he or she likes um even though as i say i'm not i'm not immune to sitting there fuming about it on a personal level sometimes but as i get older i mean again i count myself lucky that i i you know my geek filled childhood means that the guardian asked me to write obituaries for for actors um, that, that you know entertained me when I was a kid, and so it, it seems scant recompense for me to write some eight hundred accurate words about them that otherwise wouldn't have got written. And um, I'm very lucky with the plays that I'm writing for for Radio Four, um, and I'm I also you know what people are, I do a lot of voiceovers because I sound like this, um, so I have this mosaic of stuff that lucky if I if I was just a stand up, I think I think I would be. I would be worried. But I think the circuit thrives on ch change. You know, we, we, you know you, you, you're, not, you're not indisposable. Um, and there are some great comics who, who, who are often, you know, I think of somebody like Jeff Innocent, who's just Teflon and untouchable, who it still has his dignity as a comic at 60. But I don't know that we all, you know, if it's dignified for, for, for all of us to carry on um, that that long, I don't know. And you do think about it at forty-four. You go, well, how how long will people still be 
wanting to listen to me. And, uh, and you know, somebody was on stage the other day talking about incels, and I was going, oh, God, I don't really know what they are, so am I getting to the point now where the language that I speak... But actually, that might help me, perhaps, the fact that I'm a bit of a fuddy-duddy who doesn't know this stuff will give me a second wind where uh, I'm amusing because I'm so out of touch. Um, uh but, you know, the circuit thrives on new blood and, you know, the circuit is in great health. So you can't, you know, you can't resent the fact. I do think, I do think, Roger, I'm sure Roger Mankhouse came up with the line about the people who work in television and radio. Um, um, uh, it's something something like, um, you know, for them, com- comedy is like porn. They'd rather watch young people doing it badly than old people doing it well. <laughs> I think that's a Roger Mankow's line. And I, and I do sometimes... I mean, one of, these, one of these shows that I was talking to you about before when I did my moaning early phase, and I didn't mean to, I'm sorry, everybody, um, uh, was, uh, you know, somebody talking about 1970s television and the person talking about it wasn't born in the 1970s. And you go, why, why have we got somebody that doesn't know about this that happens to be on a list who's been showing the clips in advance and, you know, has written some stuff that goes with it, rather than actually somebody that genuinely was there or knows yes, about it, which I- seems an odd thing to do. Why make a television programme? You wouldn't make a television programme where you're shown how to cook by somebody who doesn't know how to cook, which I find a bit odd. I find that whole thing with that, that aspect of television odd. But it's becoming less important now that the mainstream channels are, you know, finding that sort of filler material has to perhaps maybe now be a bit more rigorous, otherwise people won't watch it. So I think we live in interesting times where actually if you are somebody that has a niche or an expertise or creates their own stuff, you're not now as beholden to the same people that you once were. I think when it comes to uh, older white male comedians, I think we notice, like we are surplus. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of us. And I think for a producer populating a show with a variety of people, we will be the last people to notice that actually the last eight people on the show were white male comedians. Because to us, it's the norm. Yeah. And we'll go, oh, wait a minute, that younger person doesn't know what they're talking about. It's like, yeah, but at least there's a younger person in there because we didn't notice that it was just older white men. Because Because to us, that's the baseline, baseline and that's what we're trying to change. But I think you have articulated that end of it. It is personally frustrating for oneself to be part of a surplus, whereas if we'd been... If we were at our ages now, gigging 20 years ago, we'd have been getting to reap all the benefits of... Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like the work's everywhere and no-one's noticed yet that we're massively in charge of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. No-one's noticed there's far too many of us. Now people have noticed, and whilst that may personally affect our bank balances, um, I think it's definitely for the good of the circuit that now it's much more diverse. And still yeah. it's got an incredible um, distance to go. Yeah, and I think we have to be careful because I also think we live in a you know, time when you know things like virtue signaling and social justice warrior are starting to be used as an insult. And so, oh, definitely, both of those terms to me are negative terms. No, no one positively calls themselves a social, ju- social justice warrior. Yeah, those are just angry terms used by people who are against political correctness. And, in and, my what, and what we have to be careful of, of course, is because the more those voices, because excess monarchy is full of people who would be accused of being those sorts of things, because it's a, quite a right-on crowd and all that sort of thing. So, of course, me as a comic, I feel like I want to stir that up. So I will sort of go on and maybe take a contrary view that's conservative with a small c, because that amuses me. Um, but you then have to be careful, as we've seen with some comics for whom it's become a, a career move to 
become right wing. I don't mean, by the way, Jeff Norcott in this. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Norcott, I've known for years. Jeff is one of my favourite comics, and you'll see from my Twitter history, I'm always retweeting him and stuff like that, because I love the fact that he makes me laugh, even though I'm not a political bedfellow of his. But I can think of other examples of comedians who've moved to the right. Um, I always think of... Um, I always think of the line from Man for All Seasons where um, Thomas More is betrayed by Richard Rich and Richard Rich, um, who's been his close friend and confidant, betrays him in court and Thomas More says, what's that you're wearing? And it's the seal of the Duchy of Wales and that's been his reward for selling out his mate. He says, Richard, it ill behoves a man to sell his soul for the universe entire, but for Wales. <laughs> and I always think, it, you know, it ill behoves you to take a lurch to the right for any reason whatsoever, but because you're not on eight out of ten cats as often as you'd like. You know, and, and I think... And I think um, and I think we have to be careful because we often take the contrary view that because actually a certain amount of enlightenment is now part of the national conversation that we don't suddenly all as comedians sort of lurch to the right just to be contrary. I feel like I see that <laughs> happening all the time. I feel like I see that happening all the time whereby older acts who in their 30s were speaking truth to power and yeah. kind of saying the saying the opposite view yeah now think because a lot of comedians are lefties yeah. and, and liberal and inverted commas snowflakes they now think that represents the majority yeah so they're kicking against that and you go yeah. no that's still yeah. the norm <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean yeah and not to say there isn't a lot of nonsense talked by the the the, 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 the um uh, some of the more liberals with a hefty media profile but that's because there are more people, liberals with a hefty media profile, so some nonsense is bound to bound to flow out. But it doesn't mean that the basic tenets of liberalism and decency aren't aren't still worth preserving and fighting for, and they still haven't won. Hence the battles we have societally at the moment. You know. So that was Toby. A real pleasure to talk to him. More information at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you would like extra material from this episode and all of the other episodes that contain extra material. And yeah, I th- I was really pleased to hear Toby be very candid and very, whatever the word is, humble, I suppose, and sensitive about the, I think, entirely justifiable feelings of... Um, uh, being one of a surplus category, being a you know a, a middle-aged white bloke in stand-up comedy, it is absolutely not difficult. But uh, I think it is very hard to complain about without having a real sense of like. Obviously, this is great for everyone, but specifically frustrating for me. You know, it's great for the circuit. It's great for people who aren't white male middle-class comedians, but. Um, uh, I think he talked about it sensitively. So if you have correspondence on that, please go to the Facebook group. Uh, you can find the Comedian to Comedian podcast on Facebook and let's have a talk about it in there. And I trust that community to have a gentle and sensitive talk about those issues without slagging anybody off, which is, I think, what we are now very good at doing in the ConCon group. The, uh, there, there is, uh, it's a really nice little corner of the internet, the, the Facebook group, because uh, we've managed to ruthlessly prune anyone who's been an arsehole. <laughs> As a result, um, people are properly getting into some really interesting uh, topics. There's been some conversation about the new panel show Hypothetical on Dave that Josh Whittacombe and uh, James Acaster are hosting uh, and uh, some other bits and bobs recently. No, they all escape me at the moment, but there's a lot of stuff on there. And for once, there was a very, very funny B-meme. Uh, we normally come down like a ton of bricks on B-memes, 
but um, there was quite a good one posted recently by a lady whose name escapes me, but thank you very much for doing that. So if you'd like to talk about All Matters Comedy and All Matters Podcast with the Comedians Comedian Podcast Facebook group, please join up there. It only takes normally a, a day or three uh, for me to click the thing that uh, that gives you admission. So um, check that out. And we'll have a talk about the issues raised in this podcast over there, I'm sure. That's all for now. Um, live episode coming up uh, 23rd of March at 1pm in Birmingham. The guest is very nearly ready to be announced. And uh, I hope you'll all go along to that. You can find links to that by Googling it and it'll be on Twitter. I'll be tweeting about it. And of course, in the show notes to this episode. Why don't we do that? God, I mean, what are we, seven years in now? We're nearly on episode 300, for Christ's sake. You think I'm a bit more of an organised workflow. It's getting there. It is getting there. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, and this isn't a post-amble, this is in lieu of a post-amble because it's more of a sort of an official announcement, I just wanted to thank everyone involved in the production of Like I Mean It, which is uh, my... I've been calling it a DVD, and then online I've been calling it a special. There isn't really a word anymore for... I mean, it's just a special, isn't it? It's an hour-long show, 55-minute-long 50, 50, show. Shorn of Edinburgh, ruthlessly toured around the country, tweaked, improved and perfected, and then released in a digital form. So it's sort of a DVD, except you can't physically buy a DVD. So to someone who got in touch recently and said, could I sign their copy, as soon as they come up with the technology to sign an MP4, I will do that. But I've made it available for free, thanks to the kind people at Dead Parrot, who are a YouTube channel, who I think their their jig is that they... um. They buy content, comedy content, from uh, previously broadcast comedy things like Star Street, fantastic Star Street, and, uh, you know, older episodes of Live at the Apollo and Russell Howard, that kind of thing. Um, and then they put them out officially and with permission on YouTube and, uh, and monetize them. They don't really do stand-up comedy shows, but I like the cut of their jib. Got in touch with them, and we have done it now as a co-pro, um, and I'm very pleased and honoured to be their first one. So uh, we've had a bundle of hits and likes and what have you on on the uh, on the show, and I'm really proud of it. So you have two options. Oh, I should say as well, I really want to thank Turtle Canyon and Stuart Laws and everyone at Turtle Canyon Comedy um, who who worked on the show for me and did such a good job of. Uh, of um, uh, recording it and editing it. And I mean, it just, I'm so proud of it. It's so, now this is why I basically, this is my point. It's so nice to have a thing out there that you're proud of that exists. I'm always saying on the podcast how comedy's like smoke. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It just goes. That's why half of us are so insecure. How are you? Yeah, oh, great. I smashed it last night. Because there's no proof. There's never any proof. And all of those people are never going to get together in the same uh, a configuration ever again and confirm that yes you were really good <laughs> so it is so satisfying to have a really good thing that I'm proud of and that you can watch so thank you to um, to everyone at Turtle Canyon who in the last year have filmed the bit of a plug here but this is very well deserved they filmed the comedy specials of James Acaster Joel Domit Dara O'Brien Tom Allen Catherine Tate Tommy Tin and Deliso Chaponda Maxine Van, Holly Byrne and loads of others plus a new Acaster one happening in March I don't know if that's being released in March or happening I remember hearing about that was that did it happen recently anyway new one coming out and they really are the business so look at that they have a YouTube channel as well and um, have a little suss of that and uh, uh, follow them in whatever they do and if you need to get a show re uh, recorded or released I cannot recommend them enough it was such a professional setup and I've ended up with a thing I'm really really proud of thank you to the wardrobe theatre as well for, for having me and um, and Chucklebusters and the comedy box who sort of uh, co-produced that 
and there's proper credits on the on the thing itself. So what I've done is um, you can watch it for free on YouTube. There's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to comedianscomedian.com slash special. And you can, there's a little trailer there for the Vimeo version. And the Vimeo version is an 82-minute director's cut, which has got loads of funny fuck-ups and mistakes. And the sound went down for a bit. And we had covered it really well. And uh, there were some cheerful heckles about it. And I also tell the famous beekeepers joke. So if you'd like to see that one, which really, I've had some great feedback back about it it really is like being there it really puts you in the room i i mean i'm all for watching a nice slick comedy special as much as the next person but i want to have actually been there and seen all the bits where it went wrong and the retakes and people sweating and panicking and stuff like that so if you would like to be part of that then by all means go to comedianscomedian.com slash special and for just five pounds sterling you can purchase a copy and also that i mean i'm uh, what am i pitching for here I'm trying to I'm trying to pay back the cost of getting it made so well. <laughs> I always knew, you know, to be a loss leader. I think I am currently one fifth towards. Thanks to the sales, uh, thanks to everyone that's bought one online. Uh, I am one fifth of the way towards paying for the substantial part, <laughs> like uh, what five percent of ten percent. Um, you know, it, 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 maybe we'll be there. It's only been out three or four days, and yeah, I've done it's done pretty well. So um, if you fancy buying one, that would support me doing that sort of thing again. I don't know if many other people have done that. It's freemium. Uh, uh, I heard someone call it freemium, which made me uh, smile. I hadn't realised it was freemium. I don't think it is freemium, actually, because you can get the whole thing for free. It's You get extra stuff if you're paid. So it's not freemium. It's um, extremium. I regret that so much. Anyway, that is that for now. I do hope you'll watch it. As I said, very, very proud of it. And if you if you like it and you would like to see more of me and you like, if you're in the UK and you'd like to see me live, then Comedians Comedian dot com slash tour and you can see all the places i'm coming to soon thank you to toby thank you to do check out toby's stuff he's he has a, a, a web presence and uh, you can find him on twitter and uh, the link to that is in the show notes as well um and try and sub- see him live and support excess malarkey and all the other bits and bobs that he's up to if you can get hold of a copy of moths ain't my doctor who scarf or indeed the follow-up show please do they are excellent um so thank you very much to toby thanks to nathan wood for editing and uploading the show thank you to uh podcast correspondent consultant and correspondent peter dobbing uh currently in adelaide so go along and see his show in adelaide um and also to uh, rob smouten for the music that's everything i think do feel free to rate review and share the show and uh, particularly if you're listening on itunes or if you're listening on <clears throat> Apple Podcasts outside of uh, outside of Britain, then your reviews are especially uh, meaningful and useful because they uh, they will help make the show visible and available to people who might not have heard of it. That's it. I am going to Texas on uh, on Friday. I'm going to Texas, and I I mean I'd be lying if I didn't suddenly think of that line from Chris Rea, but uh, <laughs> I did I did prevent myself from singing it or indeed. Mentioning it, um, I'm off to Texas again. I'm going back to South by Southwest and I absolutely cannot wait. It was so, so inspiring. If you are a Texan listener or a listener at South by Southwest uh, under any other... Wist? South by Southwest. It's a a depressing card game. Um, If you're at South by, as we cool kids now call it, uh, then pop in and say hi. I know there are some listeners in Texas because I've seen the back end stats. So... um, uh, feel free to drop in. I've got some uh, really fun interviews planned there. I won't tell you the names until they're all done and dusted and in the can, but uh, I'm very excited about them. That's all for now. No post-amble today because of all the uh, the uh, advertorial 
about the live show. Thanks for listening. Back soon with Andy Osho, Ben Yahtzee Croshaw, and as soon as I can find him, Kate Trevor Wilson. Ugh, where is it? There is definitely a hard drive. I've got this. There's so many hard drives cluttering up the place. It's in one of them. It and he is in one of them. Goodbye. Goodbye.